Hey everyone, you're listening to Hot and Bothered, Cultivating Sustainable Resistance with me, Vicki Abugalium. Unfortunately, Jordan couldn't join me to host this episode of our show today, but I still want to welcome you all to the show and thank you for tuning in. Today's show is titled, No Prisons in Our Future, Justice Requires Freedom. The content warnings for this month's episode include mentions of state violence and death. As always, I want to start us off with a land acknowledgement. The land that we are occupying is the ancestral and contemporary territory of the Shawnee, Potawatomi, Delaware, Miami, Peoria, Seneca, Wyandotte, Ottawa, Kaskaskia, and others. It is necessary for those of us whose ancestors were not brought to this land in chains to reflect upon our unearned privilege from the history of genocide and land theft perpetuated by generations of aggressive settlement and ongoing systematic structural genocide. We must recognize that no society can ever have an ethical relationship to the place it stole especially when the land was cultivated from stolen bodies and labor from indigenous Africans turned property. This month's episode is about prison abolition and tying that in with our land acknowledgement is extremely important as the land continues to be abused by colonial institutions to this day. Enslavement is still legal in the United States and is carried out via the carceral institutions that exist Um, Prison labor is routinely used to create products in service of the state when human beings are not compensated for that labor and are forced to engage in that labor. This includes working the land on prison farms, but also any forced labor that occurs on this land is relevant to acknowledging the violence that persists in the United States. We have some amazing guests this month, um, and sorry it took us forever to get this content to you um, this month, but we are still here. And I want to shout out, unfortunately, Verge FM did stop producing um, content. Uh, So we want to thank Verge for inspiring us to host this show by putting out a call for applications last year and... Um, it's really amazing to see all of the, all of the stuff they've been able to, um, bring to the creative community in Columbus. Uh, anyway, back to the show. So our guests this month are Chrissy, the uh, executive director of the Interreligious Task Force on Central America, or IRTF Cleveland, and Aramis, uh, who is the executive director of the People's Justice Project, which is local to Columbus, Ohio. And Chrissy and Aramis joined us this month to talk movement, lifestyle, and also about their work in prison abolition, racial justice, and international solidarity movements. So I'm really excited. Um, But before we get right into the interview, I just want to emphasize that prison abolition is a very big environmental justice issue for several reasons. And I want to provide some quick examples because we have so much good content in our interview this month. Um, But... Some quick examples of why prison abolition is an environmental justice issue include forced labor in environmental hazard zones. Um, Prisons are often located in um, 
areas that are zoned as industrial um, and expose inmates to a lot of local environment environmental pollutants. There's also the forced production of agricultural commodities, so forced production of of food and working of land with prison labor. There's also the forced habitation of inmates in environments that are bad for public health. Um, so an example for this that we see a lot in Ohio is the lack of functioning air conditioning in the summers when um, the heat levels are getting really high inside of prisons and also really low heat in the winter when um, inmates are experiencing extreme cold. And we also see um, forced habitation in uh, low quality environments in the quality of food that is served to inmates, which is often inedible and very bad for you. Anyone interested in some more information on this might refer to David Pello's work on prisons and critical environmental justice in their book, What is Critical Environmental Justice? Chapter 3, Prisons and the Fight for Environmental Justice. And you also might review McGee, Greiner, and Appleton's 2020 article in the journal Social Currents titled Locked into Emissions, How Mass Incarceration Contributes to Climate Change. Okay, with that... I want to jump us right into our interview, so please enjoy this, and thank you for listening. Aramis, I'd love for you to just tell us about yourself, the work you've been doing in Columbus, um, what you've been trying to sustain here. Well, um, I am Aramis uh, Malakatwitsuniyata. Um, I'm the executive director of People's Justice Project. Uh, we were founded in the heightened uh, level of BLM um, post 2014 when the African working class and the oppressed people were engaged in glorious struggle. We wanted to build organizations to absorb the um, the people into a house, a home, to be able to struggle together. Um, that was the development PJP. And from there, um, we led a lot of like, you know, it, you know, it's funny, because um, a lot of it is like a blur, you know, because um, we're still engaged. But a lot of the work has been around um, the responses to Africans being killed by the police. And then, you know, respond into a mass organization. They got a lot of uh, attention for many, many years, even to this day. And um, through that process, we just built a, a very powerful org um, in, in the city. Um, and we get a lot of respect in the state and also um, get um, a lot of respect in um, the current board of the United States with our other uh, coalition work. Um, thus, I mean, it's really just trying to build Black power in the way that we understand it um, in this current situation, in this current development in history post-George Floyd, 
we have to answer other questions now um, because in the questions we are all, always are engaged in is answering the question that was left to us from the 60s of the counterinsurgencies and the disruption and actual defeat of the African Revolution um, in, the, in the United States and abroad. Um, and so that's pretty much what we've been um, tasked with um, as an org. Um, and we are under leadership of always the people. Um, we follow the people and what they want to do. And we never are very, um, we, we try not to be um, uh, reactionary. Um, we're very focused and strategic in every move we make as much as possible. Um, thus, uh, we don't follow a lot of trends. Um, we have our own slogans. We have our own lit. We have our own messaging. Um, we don't have a practice of coercing the people um that's one that's one thing we just don't do um we don't we don't stand on the on the on the um position where we we desire the people to be neutralized does it make sense um where uh if the people are in rebellion or the people are in a level of consciousness we try to just house it and work through those things together as it runs particular campaigns or or just, you know, run things, you know, based off of that uh, relationship. So that's kind of like what we do in PJP, you know. Um, yeah. Uh, how do you see the work that you've done with PJP facilitate, um, like help facilitate that confrontation, uh, especially like material confrontation of the police and prisons in Columbus? Yeah, Either through I mean, like repression on organizers or like just being black in Columbus. I mean, if you talk about the organization, um, it's quantit it's quantifiable. It's like it's you have your, you know, um traditional um direct action organizing, which we uh that's what we do. We do direct action organizing. And we target um the state, essentially. And, and through that process, it just grows out into like bigger demonstrations, bigger direct actions, bigger trainings, bigger activities. And then I remember specifically, I don't, I don't think I've ever told this story like on, on an interview, um, but there was this moment in like 2016, I think 17, uh, where we were leading struggle here against what Henry Green was murdered and also Tyree King at the time. And um, we did the whole, like, you know, city council takeover, which was actually crazy because this is what people don't actually know. So when that went down, it wasn't planned to be that way. You know what I'm saying? It was just like, we're going to show up. We're going to do some dope shit. Word. And then it became a thing. You know, Hannah jumped on the table and shit. Yeah. We're doing our thing. But this, this is the crazy shit. This is the crazy shit. People, people think... All right, so the students at OSU were doing a demonstration that same day. Oh. And they took the streets, right? Like OSU was on fire that same day at the same time. And so it looked like it was coordinated, but it wasn't. What? And so, yeah, and so it was nuts. So we in the building, like in city council doing our thing, you know what I mean? And then we, we're we outside doing our thing, you know, the interviews and all that good shit. And then we get back to the crib. And then the news says, protesters take over. We're like, what you talking about? Like, you know, we're looking at the shit. And then 
OSU's on fire at the same time. Like, yo, like, it looked like it literally happened on purpose, but it wasn't. And then Pernob hit me up, like, yo. <laughs> I was just like, yeah, so he's like, we gotta talk about that. I know. But that's not the point. The point, that was just crazy. But um, no one knows that. Uh, but after that, we did all these things. Then we did another, we had a press conference or something downtown. And we were going to the prosecutor's office that, uh, a little bit after that. We're walking down the street. And then, um, you know, a couple hundred people outside. And I had this role to, like, you know, talk about the struggle. And Tammy had to do a thing. And then the kids had to do a thing. And I was go- about to go in. And... I just froze like in front of everybody, you know what I mean? Like 500 niggas was out there and I'm like, I couldn't get it out. And then I broke like right there, you know what I mean? In front of everybody, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And then um, I go on the side and I have my hands in my head, just like thinking. And then Hana, Hana comes up to me. This is why I love her so much, by the way. Uh, Cause she's the only one that saw me at this moment um she came over there and put a hand on my shoulder but i never told people what i was actually thinking and what i was actually thinking this goes to your question um was that we have pushed the people as far as we can at, at this particular moment we need a rebellion and i know and i knew as historians we had three to four years left until something happens, a critical mass where people are just outside, you know what I'm saying? And so what I, what I mean by that is in the, in the current border of the United States, you can do a few things and it can lead you to build organization. But as an organization, you have to be clear that there are certain phenomena that have to occur for the people to rise to level of consciousness because oftentimes the material conditions lag behind the conscience of the people. You see what I'm saying? And so you may understand it as we work, as we, because we, we organize in the real world. You know, we don't, you know, does that make sense? I know you know what I'm saying, Chrissy. It's like we we understand certain phenomena, certain occurrences based off of our work. And so if you're organizing in the real world, you know certain phenomena have to occur in the real world to push the people to a level of consciousness. Thus, at that moment, without you know, someone unfortunately being murdered or like Donald Trump being elected, you know what I mean? There's certain things that had to emerge you know, mm-hmm. disrupt the political conscience of the people at the particular moment, because it was like, this is as far as we can go, because they're not gonna, this is as far as it goes, you know, without um, something uh, occurring. And thus, to answer your question uh, more precisely, you just had to keep building. You had to keep going. And you had to just understand that you're building organization because organization is our only defense against outside forces. It's it. That's all we have. And so if you build organization and the people deem you as the organization to lead, you have a responsibility to be that razor focus and that discipline in the process. You see, there's no, there's no, there's no fun and games with it anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, you become a thing. The symbol, the, the 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 history behind the symbol and the history behind all the things, 
you become actors in history with the mass of the people. And so yeah. no longer are you just playing with your friends. You know, you're like, oh shit, we're really about, we're really outside now. You know what I'm saying? And we have to take the brunt of the state with the surveillance and all the sex that people talk about. You got to be able to understand that, okay, there's no lukewarm. Either you're for the people or not for the people. And once you cross that line, it's a river of no return. You can't go back to being civilian. There's no way. There's like, you you know too much. It, or, 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 the, or the organization got to a point where I have to do an interview with these OSU people because they tapped us in, you know what I'm saying? Like, and that's just how it rolls, you know? And, and, um, and it's isolating sometimes, uh, extremely yeah. isolating. Um, but it's part of the process. So I hope that answered your question. It reminds me of the Immortal Technique song, uh, The Point of No Return. I was listening to that song in the middle of the compo in Colombia. Yeah. I'm like accompanying an indigenous mining community. And I was just like, there's no fucking going back. I had no idea what I was walking walking into. I am done. (laughs) And you can't play with it. Like I was, I remember beginning a training up in upstate in Cleveland. Like I remember it was a couple of years back and and they had, they were doing, remember that documentary, uh, uh, that Dispatch to Cleveland? Uh, yes. That's before it came out. They had the booms and all this shit. So I'm doing a training and they had the boom in my face and it, all the students are in there from OSA and there's like a hundred some students in there and they have the thing in my face. So I'm like, get that out of my face. And they're like, what, what? I'm like, you don't understand. These students have no idea what they're walking into. You know what I'm saying? You have to be very serious. It's like they did. Someone organized them to be in this room off of an action, off of a one-to-one, off of a, a flyer, off of a podcast. The podcasts weren't a thing yet, but off all of that, <laughs> a petition, radio, And so, like, they're in here thinking it's like, oh, I'm going to be a part of this Rosa Park shit. It's like, no, nigga. Like, this is no joke. You know what I'm saying? This is no joke you know and they had i i told them to got my face because it's very very serious it's like you don't not everybody gets built to deal with the real world <laughs> you know what I'm like, in el salvador we um the people who've been in doing solidarity accompaniment work for the last like 40 50 years in el salvador they say that that is where you go to have your heart turned inside out that like wow. you're broken for life in a really beautiful way where, you know, we're just turned from the inside out, yeah. completely transformed, just like the mushrooms, right? Like we're making new life out of death, decay, decomposition. Had Aramis do a little intro. Do you want to take a moment? Yeah, sure. Um, hey everyone, it's so good to be in this circle with three people who I love and admire and respect and want to build communities and bridges and villages with. Um, Yeah, my name is Chrissy Stonebreaker Martinez. I'm the co-executive director of the Interreligious Task Force on Central America and Colombia, or IRTF Cleveland. And I'm a bridge builder. I'm very much a connector. I do a lot of coalition work and help um, bring coalitions together. And 
that means, a, you know, accompanying people when they're not always at their best and trying to hold people accountable and um, ourselves accountable. And I straddle like a position, you know, I'm not, we're all unique. Everybody has a role in the movement. I am not Aramis, though we share a lot of similar roles. We also have like really unique styles and we each complement each other in what we're trying to build here in Ohio. And so, yeah, happy to be with you. Cool, thank you so much. Yeah, so we were just, I mean, I, you were listening in, but I wanted to ask a follow-up question to like what we were talking about. Um, so with PJP, um, Aramis, Jordan was writing that kind of like you were organizing in Columbus when some of the most disruptive PJP actions were happening. And we're wondering like, so you've also seen the state respond to you, you know? And it's like, how have you seen that change since you started and like now the state, I mean, it remains to be a very powerful institution, but like locally, oh, have seen that change? The state as in the pigs? As in the pigs, as in- The city of the Columbus. The city of Columbus as a city state. Yeah. Um, like we all, it all functions. Yeah, so, in so, so I always make sure you so the state is the property understood. The state are those you do not elect. So that is the police, that is the FBI, the CIA. You have the socialist state, you have the capitalist state. And so the question of the state is always the question of who is being repressed. It's a repressive force, period. But the question is whom is. And so when you engage the state, the purpose is to, you know that they're coming. And it depends on how build, how big you build your org to see what the impact will be. So when we were doing OSA organizing, they weren't really doing a lot. You know, you'll see them outside, they'll be on their little bikes. In fact, they will talk to you and try to, you know, just talk to you. And then once Africans and, and other oppressed peoples and unity uh, were engaged in similar struggle, um, taking over territories, whether it be the hospital's office, whether it be the street, whether it be the state house, whether it be whatever, it quantified itself. So before, you know, they would show up and they would say, no, you can't do this, do that. And then the bikes show up, then the horses show up, then the helicopters show up, then snipers are there. And then it becomes a situation where you are comfortable with the chaos because you know that if they touch any of us, it's going to be on media and it's going to be a thing. now. The interesting thing that's developed, <clears throat> and I never really actually said this publicly, is that, you know, we won in Columbus the um, the lawsuit where the, the police can no longer use certain type of uh, things. Yeah. Was it like pepper spray and stuff like that to peaceful demonstrators? What that actually means in real time, tactically, is that 
you can run up and how sure you want. You know what I'm saying? If you're peacefully protesting. So the tactics have to shit change now, where if you really want to draw attention and win on grassroots campaigns through direct actions, you have to do direct action now. You can't just do protests, you see? Uh-huh. They're now allowing you to do them, you see? And so that's the discussion that's happening um, currently. We're going to bring to the people where it's like, okay, y'all can, Y'all can walk over down high street all you want. You know, you you don't see them coming outside. You know, you know, if you got a cruiser following you and protecting you, you have to question your tactics materially. You have to really question like, what are you really doing? Because you're no different than you know, say, a grass tops organization that does a little rally downtown. You know what I'm saying? Like. If, if you really want to be a grassroots org and affect real material change in people's lives immediately in this in this country, you have to really be able to raise your consciousness to see what tactics can you can you use. Because if you go up into a police station, they're going to come. You know what I'm saying? If you go up into any uh, institution of colonialism, they're going to show up. But if you just up and down Broad Street. You know, you're not going to do anything. So we talk about so we talk about the state coming at you and the shifting. I mean, the petty bourgeoisie are going to do what they do, man. I mean, they're going to say some bullshit. You know, we don't pay no attention to them. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? They they have a whole thing they do. Um, but when it comes to the state, you have to um, really examine your tactics um, when it comes now today. Because before, like, we showed up downtown. They're coming. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like, they're coming in force, you know? Right. But now, it's like, yeah, protesters. Fantastic. So this brings it to a question for both of you, um, which goes back to the title of the show. Uh, we try <laughs> we try to ask this question for all of our guests, but honestly, we forget all the time. <laughs> but um, our question is, what does it mean to you both to cultivate sustainable resistance. And so maybe in this context, um, we could go with like when we're applying grassroots pressure, you've already commented Aramis on like the effective tactics that have been used, but yeah, just kind of that reflection, like what does it mean to cultivate sustainable resistance? It's a challenging question because um, I don't want to just keep sustaining. I don't want to have to always be resilient. I do want to thrive. And a lot of us, most of us, uh, didn't choose this life. The life chose us. Um, Our life experiences, our um, positional circumstances, our material reality. And we hurt each other a lot in... um, in this work we hurt each other a lot as humans just in life and we don't you know it makes me think about what it means also to be an abolitionist um we don't always create the conditions to make it possible for people to take accountability when they uh, project harm onto something or someone else so um creating sustainable resilient communities uh to me is really about 
having the sort of systems of care that are necessary to continue to live and to build neighborhoods and relationships that we can rely on that will help us to survive the conditions that we know are to come based off of our positionality as historians or as, or as historical actors. So, you know, we don't, we often shame people um, when they project harm onto us and shame is a motivating factor, but it's mostly a negative motivating factor. And often people, especially in U.S. society where there's so much exceptionalism, where there's neo-colonialism, neo-fascism, neo-feudalism happening, uh, we, we know that people get defensive. And so um, when we can finally like create relationships where people can healthily take responsibility for the actions and the things that they're contributing to, um, then we can raise our consciousness as, as Aramis was saying, I think. I think that's very important for us to be keeping in mind, especially as people yeah. who wanna have any sort of material-based abolitionary like material institutions based on abolition. No, I mean, like, I think Chrissy's spot on because like, that was my first, my first instinct was like, you know, I remember Chrissy said before earlier that some of us do a different thing. You know, Chrissy is a bridge builder. Um, I've, I've accepted and I've learned that I enjoy the fight. I en actually enjoy it. You know what I mean? Like, I love getting up in the morning and engaged in struggle. Like, you know, um, I love like new leaders and, and finding them and that whole process of finding them, you know what I'm saying? Like, or planning, you know, I don't mind spending four hours on a laptop strategizing for the next stage or three-year plans. You know what I mean? I don't mind, you know, going out in the street and saying, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm that guy, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, I love it when people feel like, I love when I, when people believe in something bigger than themselves, you know, I, mean? I love seeing that new person who like shifts, you know what I'm talking about, Chrissy? I'm thinking my, of the Buddhist truth. Yeah. Uh, that life is suffering and life is struggle. Um, yeah. That's what I believe. Uh, that that truth means and I feel like we're all going to struggle in different ways and for me I'm willing I'm willing to fight but I'm also yeah. willing to nurture and I'm also willing to care and I'm willing to um, yeah it definitely invest time and in people and human beings development that's something that's really exciting it's like amazing to watch people's continual process of becoming. When I build relationships with people, my intention is that that is a relationship that I'm gonna hold for the future. And sometimes relationships are only meant to be for seasons. Yeah. But I think that like we are, we all have different skills and gifts, right? And different tools in our tool belts that we have to be willing to contribute. And as Aramis said earlier, it's lonely out here. <laughs> Like it can feel really isolating. I 
in my current season of life, I'm trying to take the approach that, you know, I want to invite people with good intentions in uh, to be able to really act in ways of being that actually create positive transformation. And I think that we need more people to get involved and we need more people to be committed to the struggle and to recognize their privilege and to listen more and to be okay with not uh, centering the sort of attention economy that we're existing in, that we're trying to just barely survive in. But, but there is a thing that touches on it is that though I am the way I am, like there's a whole community that supports each other and like and it's amazing when you actually acknowledge it and actually see it you know it's like it's like it's like we are you know this thing called Ubuntu I am because we are right and you have to and when people always say like we keep us safe in our shit that is the realest shit possible I mean like that is so real like I gave an example last Friday about how my wife got sick, right? And she's hardcore. She's like, you know, tough. She's like, I don't even know. You know I mean? And I was like, <laughs> I, put one, I put one call out and I swear to you, like my people are going to pull up on you. It was during COVID. And I put one call out. And then next thing you know, coals at the door, high at the door with bread, with all, all the things. And I was like, she doesn't know anything about which she's a complete civilian. And she's like, whoa, I was like, yes, because, and it's the first time she ever saw that, like community care stuff. Like I was like, there are whole orgs that, or people in our city, if you put that one, if you even put a a hint that you are feeling down or whatever, they are pulling up on you quick. You know what I'm saying? And that's the thing we talk about when we talk about resistance and resilience. I can only do what PJP does because of the extended community um, that allows us to function. It's like, and, or, I don't know how many times I get a text. How you doing, brother? You good? You all right? Nigga, I'm fine, baby. Like, I'm good. You know what I'm saying? But like, but like, but just the fact that they see you and we see each other. It's like, I pulled up in Cleveland once and I went to Chrissy's crib. I was like, yo, Chris, I'm in Cleveland. All right, come on, baby, come through. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's, it's like that. You know what I'm saying? It's like that in the state. It's like that in the actual, in the United States. Like I can literally go anywhere in the country and feel comfortable because we have this weird network of care where there are people like Chrissy there are people like, say, Aaron Upchurch or people in our city who acknowledge that this is difficult. And if we want, really want to build a community and society how we envision it in our, on our papers or whatever, we have to actually act it out. It's one thing to say, oh, I'm a socialist. It's one thing to live like one. You know what I mean? Or there's one thing to be a, a, a revolutionary sense or and to live like one. Even people who say they're abolitionists, it's one thing to say it and then actually live it. 
And so if you inside of the, if you side the network and, and you actually are actively building and actually doing things, sustainability is about leaning on each other, knowing that we can't do this all by ourselves. If you think you can do that, you're fucking arrogant and you're ignorant. And, and, and you will be seen real quick of who you really are. Um, and also you have to be humble. You have to be humble to know that, wait a minute, I better not say X, Y, and Z on social media because that group is going to respond. So you have to be able to be uh, sensitive to the fact that that exists. Hell yeah. I love that. I, I at least personally, like, feel like specifically community care and mutual aid organizing um, has been like really deep rooted lately in our community as well. And that's new. Like that's not, that wasn't around in 17, 14, 12. That was a, okay. I had to get used to it. I was like, what the fuck you just said? I'm good. Self-determination, <laughs> all that kind of shit. And so, so you had to get to it. And also, you know, you, yeah, that part, you had to get used to the fact that people are looking out, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. People are, that's a new thing, you know what I mean? There, there was no, I mean, then again, it, it was PJP and OSA here, but there is, we, when we say comrade, we really mean it, you know, it's, it's not like you pick, you, you get born into your family. You know, I have a little sister. I have a mom and father. I love them to death, all of them. But they're not my comrades. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's like comrades is like we're committed to each other. Yeah. You're committed to each other. And also you've seen the worst and the best of that person. And also you see what they're made of. You yeah. understand? You know what I mean? You see the real person in real time where you may have, I give this story sometimes. I'm sorry, I want to say this one. I give this story about when we did during the rebellions, okay? And I've been in them, so I'm good with it. I don't know if you guys know who Jordan Close is. Mm -hmm. but she, Yeah, okay, this is true. She's going, man, I'm telling this story. So we're downtown the first night of the rebellion. Jordan gets hit hard with pepper spray. I'm talking directly in their face. I grab her, get the medics, and Atticus on the side, know where Atticus was. Atticus, get to it, all the good shit, go back and come back. I check on Shorty. And I'm like, are you all right? She said, I'm good, I'm good. I'm like, all right, you want to leave? She's like, no. I was like, wait, I'm thinking she's about to dip. You know what I'm saying? No, I'm like, are you sure? Because you don't have to do this. You know what I mean? You don't have to be in this. It's about to get busy. You know what I'm saying? And Shorty goes, yeah, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. All right, because if you go back in here, it's going to it's gonna get real. You know what I mean? And the look on her face was like, okay. She's got this. And she was like, I was like, you want to get some? She's like, yeah. All right. Stay with me. You know what I'm saying? And that whole, that whole development, she's with us. And that, that thing, it's like, you saw the real person. You know what I mean? Like 
you saw that like, oh, you really want to get busy. All right, we can do that, you know, or someone who's in a meeting and or in a meeting and and they by themselves say, hey, I'll go get the sign-in sheets. And you're like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like the real person, you know? And over the years, you struggle so much together that there's a trust and there's a type of bonding that I trust Chrissy to show up. You know what I mean? I trust Chrissy that if something happens, I know Chrissy has me, you know what I mean? I may not see Chrissy for five years, but I, I know, you know, because there's a com comrades that were committed to each other. And that's really the differences between the, the, the community care stuff. The community care is like comrades are holding you down. You know what I mean? They may not be up and up doing the day-to-day -day organizing things, but they will show up. Absolutely. Um, so speaking of Chrissy, Chrissy, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about kind of the work you've done with IRTF, but also like how does that relate to um, any of the work that y'all have done against ICE or against like the prison industrial complex in general? Yeah, how does that relate to environmental justice or the environmental justice movement in your mind? Oh. All right. What a question. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. How much time you got? Our organization was founded in 1980 uh, because two women were killed in El Salvador alongside two women from New York. And these people, Jean Donovan and Dorothy Kazel, were from Cleveland. And they were accompanying refugees in El Salvador, helping them cross um, the borders and just caring for people and local communities, grassroots communities, farm worker communities, campesino communities. These are like peasant subsistence farming communities. As the violence was escalating, I think is really like where I can see um, looking at their stories that they committed to being accomplices because they had people back in the United States who loved them, who decided that they wanted to get their family members to come home because they were worried that they were going to die like they did. And they said, if, you know, the kids on my street can't leave, then neither am I. They said, this is my community that I've been in for many years, that where I am accepted, this is my home. I've been welcomed here. Um, and I committed to being an accomplice. We didn't have that language in 1980, but I think that that is sort of where they were going with their accompaniment work, with the level of commitment and solidarity that they had with the people. And um, so these women were killed by U.S. trained and funded forces. Uh, what is ironic is that we knew that this part of why we knew that this was the case was because um, the youngest, who was 27, Jean Donovan, her father was a military contractor and he worked on helicopters that were only made for U.S. military contracts. Wow. So she saw those helicopters flying above her head and she knew that they could only be from the U.S. military. And it took, you know, 30 years of truth commissions to uh, for the U.S. government to acknowledge even that, yes, we did train and fund these forces who ended up killing these um, people who were our own citizens 
you know, El Salvador is a really interesting place. Um, there are so many layers of context. It, it's impossible for me to include them all, but almost 75% of the country's indigenous population was killed in their 12-year civil war. They and their organizing fought to ban mining in their country because CAFTA, the Central American Free Trade Agreement that was promoted and implemented in the 90s, had made 97% of their drinking water not potable. Oh my God. Because of the effects of mining. And here I am, I'm a Colombian uh, embedded descendant person living in Ohio. <laughs> and I am struggling to find belonging in this community. And I'm struggling as a poor person and a child and um, part of an, you know, immigrant family, a mixed status family, uh, um, all sorts of different, you know, layers of just life experience that that I'm sitting in and I realized that their water is not potable in the same way that our neighbors to the South in West Virginia's water is not potable because of mountaintop removal. And I think to myself like, huh, wow, the same things happen to oppressed people all over the world. I was doing um, some of my accompaniment work in Colombia several years ago, and I was meeting with a woman who is part of an indigenous feminist organization. And she was telling me about the boarding schools that her, her nation, her tribe's community was sent to her grandparents and her parents. And it was a Franciscan boarding school. And I just bawled my eyes out not restrained of me this person is offering their story and here i am soaking up all the air in the room crying but i hear i am this person who was raised in ohio who knows that the haudenosaunee confederacy whose land i live on also experienced these same boarding schools and i grew up in youngstown <laughs> when i say that people are like you what are you like from Youngstown Youngstown or are you from you know how people say yeah and my parents my um generation my my mom her siblings they left Colombia when Medellin where my family is from was the homicide capital of the world and that was like in the 80s and 90s and they moved because of all sorts of things because of chain migration and because of love and poverty and war and all of the things that create um, human beings and new life. They went to Youngstown. We definitely were the only young family in Youngstown who was Colombian that I could find. Um, when I was in high school, Youngstown was the homicide capital of the United States. And so yeah. I left one, you know, my family fled one place displaced from their indigenous homeland because of violence and because of capitalism just to come to another place that is devastated by violence and capitalism and yeah. so I started um I have been very lucky very um grateful to find a vocation where I have been a part of this community at IRTF 
where I could find other people who are my people, find other people of faith, find other people of conscience, find other anarchists and socialists and progressives and all sorts of different people, other migrant people, other indigenous people. I started to do this work, you know, like full time where I'm, we take on 72 urgent human rights cases from Central America and Colombia every year. And uh, many of those people, they are ultimately assassinated because they're human rights defenders, they're environmental rights defenders, their family members are assassinated or targeted. And I've been able to be part of this community that is like really involved in transforming grief and um, is part of a lineage that has done a really great job with historical memory and truth and reconciliation work. And so I just like started to, because of my brokenness, because of my struggle, because of my family's um, positionality, I needed to find other people in Ohio who could understand what it meant to like watch someone be murdered, could understand what it meant to like have family members who are martyred because of violence. And, and I found that by just showing up to commemorate the lives of those who've been affected by police brutality in our community. You know, in Cleveland, we've had a couple of really big cases, like the 137 shots case that killed Timothy Russell and Melissa Williams. We've had other um, cases that have involved uh, mental health response where care response would have been just so necessary and life-saving with Tanisha Anderson. And of course, um, our community has one of the babies who've been lost to state violence. And of course, that's Tamir Rice. And so in showing up to grieve publicly and to be willing to put my body on the line publicly because, you know, they've raped our bodies, they've tortured our bodies, they've beaten our bodies down, they've commodified our bodies. For me, like transforming that means like participating in direct action. It means saying, no, look what I can do with my body. And so with my body and with my bridge building, um, you know, I And also being part of this diaspora, right? Like what happens in Central America and Colombia affects me, my people, my lineage, my ancestors, my family, my descendants. In Colombia and in in indigenous places across South America, we believe that the whole Western Hemisphere, North and South America are one continent and one, um, one home. And so we call that home Aviayala. And Norteños, um, indigenous North Americans, they believe that at least the Northern and Western hemisphere is one home and, and that home is called Turtle Island. And so of course, you know, that's where this migrant justice work comes in and where resisting ice comes in and where participating in indigenous um, struggles and solidarity comes in and standing rock happens and um we're resisting fracking in this state and 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 i start to realize like this is all one you know one big thread one continuous um system that we're not only that we're against but also that we're all affected by and so that's where like 
so basically anything that happens between Columbia and Haudenosaunee land north of Lake Erie to people who are trying to move their bodies freely and resist capitalization and show up at the U.S.-Mexico border or the Mexico-Guatemala border with their bodies as a literal protest to say, stop killing me. Um, that affects me because that's part of part of how I I see myself and place myself in in the communities that I'm a part of. So I just kept going deeper and I'm like, well, if ICE detention centers, you know, shouldn't exist, then neither should prisons because it's the same exact practice of caging people, of locking people up, of exploiting their labor, of exploiting their bodies and their worth. And so I got more involved in the, um, in the struggle here in Cuyahoga County um, as part of the initial team of people in the first few months um, of our organization forming uh, with the Cuyahoga, the Coalition to Stop the Inhumanity at the Cuyahoga County Jail, more affectionately called the Jail Coalition. Um, We were founded in uh, late 2018 after a string of deaths at the Cuyahoga County Jail. And uh, we've just been like trying to uncover, unravel the, you know, mountain of oppression that has been hid away in these, in these jails downtown in Cleveland, Ohio. And um, in our uncovering, we've found that we found terrible building conditions. We found um, malnutrition. We found lack of healthcare. We've found um, torture, which is solitary confinement. We found abuse and neglect. We found people who haven't been able to receive um, their basic human rights who are uh, locked in a cage because they can't afford to pay a bail, something that a rich person would never have to experience. Uh, We found people who were uh, never charged with um, a trial or, you know, or a crime who ended up, you know, ultimately being exonerated, who were kept in detention for 200 days past their release date. And more connections come into my brain and my mind where I'm like, you know, 80%, over 80% of the men the Muslim men who've been detained in Guantanamo Bay prison on in occupied land in Cuba have never been charged with a crime or had a trial. There were nearly 800 men who were detained there since the war on terror. Uh, this prison became a prison facility as it exists now on January 11th, 20, 2002, right after, you know, this Islamophobic imperialist project um, that I grew up in, <laughs> right? And so all of these things are are very deeply connected. And um, and we we were grieving the deaths of these um, people in the Cuyahoga County Jail, and that's something that I know how to do. I know how to grieve. I think I must be some sort of grief doula or something, or just my transforming my own trauma has made me, um, you know, practice and 
what it means to assist and accompany others through their own transformations. So, you know, I, I got involved in this fight and um, we've been a direct action organization at many times uh, in our iterations, but uh, we had to change our tactics and direct actions as Aramis, you know, with his story before said, they're not always uh, exactly planned. <laughs> so since April of this year, we've been attending um, jail uh county council steering committee meetings about the jail and giving public comments. And sometimes we have to turn up in those meetings. And sometimes those meetings, those turnups aren't planned. It's because the law enforcement officers and the elected and appointed officials in the room don't want us to say what we have to say because it hurts them. It hurts their ears because they're culpable, because they're guilty. So, um, so we participate in direct actions, but we have been doing this public comment campaign and we were able to, <laughs> I can't even believe it at, yes. actually, we were able to get both county um, executive candidates. They're going to be voting on county uh, executive tomorrow at the time of this recording uh, in Cuyahoga County. We got both of them to say that they would stop the plan if they were elected. Thank you so much, Chrissy and Aramis, for joining us this month. I cannot believe we were able to coordinate and all get in the same room. We had an amazing conversation. Um, our call to action this month um, is really just to encourage people to connect with resources that support incarcerated folks on the inside of prisons. Um, so something that we have in Columbus is um, like a book club that sends books to inmates. Um, one of the more famous ones, I think, is No Name Book Club, which is run by no name, the rapper. And um, I would also encourage people to look up who locally is working through systems like J-Pay, J-A-Y-P-A-Y, um, which is a way that you can send funds to people's commissary accounts inside. Um, but other than that, it's been a really crazy month, so I don't have too much call to action for you all. I'm so sorry. Um, but just in general, look up who is doing prison abolition work in your community. Um, I know another one that is worth mentioning that does a lot of abolition-based organizing is the Black Queer and Intersectional Collective, or Be Quick, um, who is local as well. Okay, you just listened to Hot and Bothered, Cultivating Sustainable Resistance. We would like to take a moment to acknowledge folks and organizations who've worked on and inspired the production of this episode. So thank you to Jordan Mays, Vicki Abugalium, Chrissy and Aramis, Marissa Twig, Sam Holman-Smith, Ali Chitwood, Haley Kujawa, and Jacqueline Fleming. And another shout out to Verge FM. Cuyahoga County Jail Coalition, the Interreligious Task Force on Central America, and People's Justice Project. Bye!